All right, tonight, talk to you about something that is very, very important. It's really emergency status for you right here. And as well as a challenge for what you might do for the Lord in serving abroad. Title of the message is Dialogue with Doubt. Steve Wiggum, a sales and marketing consultant in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, some of his biggest clients are Michelin and BMW, the actual uh, motor, <laughs> motor vehicle company, the Bavarian Motor Works, uh, BMW, has got their largest plant, I think probably the largest plant in the world in Spartanburg. Steve graduated from a well-known conservative Christian college, married Dawn, and they had several children. He became a deacon in a local Baptist church. But then he experienced a health setback, then a business reversal, and then he felt the deacons were acting stupid about several issues in the church, and Steve fell into a crisis of faith. He doubted God was really there. On a business trip to the Middle East, he experienced the warm hospitality of his Muslim hosts and began to doubt everything that he had learned growing up as a good Republican Baptist kid. Steve resigned from the deacon board. He stopped going to church. Dawn tried to keep life going as normally as a faithful wife could as Steve began investigating other religions and months later began reading books by the new atheists. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett. He eventually believed two things that didn't add up. One, God doesn't exist. Number two, I'm angry with him. On a trip up to Northland International University, a Christian college in northern Wisconsin, to provide marketing consultation, Steve finished yet another book by Richard Dawkins as he landed in Green Bay. He then sat down with godly men who, after their deliberations, went into a season of prayer. And these men knew God, and they knew how to pray. And as they prayed, God spoke to Steve and told him in his spirit to come back. He melted into heaving sobs and tears as they prayed. He chronicled his thought journey in a book entitled Eclipse of Faith, When Doubt Overwhelms Religious Belief. People, in whose, people whose, hearts, whose hearts have moved into the darkness cannot see God with their minds. This kind of story is happening all over America. 35% of Generation Z, the current high schoolers and early college students now, 35% of them consider themselves atheist, agnostic, or religiously unaffiliated, the highest percentage this country has ever seen. About 25 years behind European thought, America is increasingly darkening and becoming a mission field. And I'm challenging your church leaders. They're going to need to prepare you for a dialogue with doubt. There's much of Bible that you need to learn from the pulpit, the ministry of the word. But in addition to that, you need to start learning your theology. You need to start learning your apologetics. And you need to start learning your ethics. Because the wave of anti-Christian sentiment is coming. Our passage tonight is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 23. Many of you are familiar with it. And I understand that Romans has just uh, finished up being taught here. And so some of you may be very familiar with it. Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, very important, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice, minds moving into hearts, darkening. Professing or claiming themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We will spring back to and around this passage as we move through things tonight. Let's pray. God, our Father, the people sitting here know about as well as anybody in America what it's like to live in a secular society. Here in the beauty of Puget Sound, where your beauty is seen all around us, there is such atheism and skepticism. And Father, lest we think that it's all out there, you know, and I'm guessing, that there are people probably sitting here, maybe who have grown up in Christianity and grown up in church, who have some real sincere doubts. And they've been pushed, they've gone through times of struggle and suffering, and maybe have not been given the skills to know how to process that. And so they pray and cry out to you for changed circumstances, but things do not change and they wonder if you're there. And while we can engage in this euphoria of worshiping you, Father, there are some that turn away, go back home, and in the quiet of their bedroom, there's the smoke of doubt in their soul. I pray, Father, for some to go on a missions trip tonight, maybe into their own soul, but then also to commission themselves to the culture right here in Puget Sound, as well as the needs that are out there around the world. By your grace, do a work, stir up a mighty army that would be winsome and winning for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul said, I'm not afraid of the gospel. So what exactly is this gospel? I don't know if you've ever had it clearly explained to you. My wife is teaching the kids tonight, and I said, Karen, remember, you and I both trusted Christ at age four. Don't think this is a small thing. This is what I came to kind of understand. Four points of bad news, four points of good news. It is amazing, guys, when missionaries enter our mission for training. I get on a whiteboard, and I say, okay, give me the gospel in logical order. And they're like, uh, Jesus died for us? It's like, don't, that's not the first point. And they're like, oh. And they really don't have a good framework in their minds. You really like, I went through EE, you know? Heaven is a free gift. It's not earned a, whoa, ho, ho, don't even start there. Everything, good news and bad news, start with God. Now, God is not bad news, but if you don't know him well and you don't know him properly and you're not related to him, yeah, it could be bad news. First of all, the creator wants us to be morally perfect. We are created in God's image as moral creatures. You know good from evil, little babies, you know? You don't need to teach them bad things. This is how you lie. Okay, Bobby, this is how you steal. When mommy says, don't take the cookie, take it and eat it. And when I come back in the kitchen and I say, did you take a cookie? You go, uh-uh. Okay, are you ready? Let's practice. No, you don't ever have to train a kid. They know what's right and what's wrong, and yet they have this evil force within them. What surfaces very early, doesn't it? <laughs> Every young mom is like, she's so cute, but she's so evil. Okay, so we're created in God's image. God commanded that we be morally perfect. We failed, all of us are fallen, broken, sinful. We were born this way. It is part of our soul, our makeup. We discover it naturally. And so we're sinful in nature, but we're also sinful in our actions. All of us, no matter how cleaned up we pretend to be on Sunday or when we gather with the church, that sin has separated us from God. Okay? This is what death means in the scripture. When he says you're spiritually dead, it means you're separated from God. All right, so it's like an old black and white movie. You remember? Key Largo, Humphrey Bogart. Do you remember that? And uh, somebody gets murdered. And they go to the phone. Remember, they used to have phones on walls, all of us that were older. And you pick up the phone, and inevitably there's a, 
a, a thing of lightning and thunder, and he picks up and he says, the phone is dead. The phone is dead. Did someone kill the phone? Someone shoot the phone? No, someone just cut the wire, cut off communication with the outside world. That's what spiritual death is. Spiritually, you're alive working as a person, but you're not connected with God, and the Bible says that's death. When you die physically, your spirit is, continues the separation from God in a place of judgment called hell. The worst part of the bad news is the fourth part. We cannot save ourselves through good or religious works. Well, I've been coming to Edgewood all my life. Doesn't work. Sorry. I was baptized as a child. I was baptized as an adult. I've been through communion. I've been, I, do, I try to do good things. I try to help people out. I try to help the poor. I volunteer at the Salvation Army. I do all this stuff. And you ask a lot of people, if you were to die, do you know if you believe in God in heaven, do you believe you'd be with God in heaven? Well, I think so. I hope so. I've been a pretty good person. There's the issue. Most all of the religions in the world, Islam, most forms, even forms of Christianity, are saying that there's something you can do to make God happy with you. Somehow you can merit your way back to God. The worst part of the bad news, no. The scripture is clear, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. By grace you are saved, it is a gift. It cannot be earned or deserved. Okay, so enough of the bad news. Again, we start with God again for the good news. God loves us. Someone had to pay for your sin, you could never pay it off. So God said, I need a perfect human being to die in your place and in my place. Any perfect human beings out there? No. So God said, I'm going to do the job myself. That's who Jesus was. And he came to die, taking judicially, taking all of our sins on himself at the same time. He entered our world to save us. Perfect life, great teachings, but Jesus died in our place for our sins, was buried rose again the third day, the only founder of any religious faith in the world that is still alive. Belief in Jesus, repentance and belief is the only way to God. There is no other way. We are not inclusivists. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Put it in any other language, it's the same. Yo soy el camino, y la verdad, y la vida. See? Ich bin der Weg und die Wahrheit und das Leben. Niemand kommt zum Vater denn durch mich. It's only one way. It's an exclusive claim of Jesus. He's the only way to God. So, when I repent and believe, my heart, my life, my purpose, and my destination become new. Be careful. I'm only giving you a fraction of the gospel. This is the gospel that applies for the saving of a human soul, like yours. This is what I believed in in diminished form when I was four years old. An adult, any culture, anywhere, kind of has to understand these concepts. You can shape it differently if you are in an honor-shame culture. You definitely want to, this is more judicial. This is more guilt-innocence culture, but honor-shame or power-fear, you want to shape it a little bit differently. But these are the core ideas. The gospel is actually much bigger. The gospel has includes the redemption of our bodies. Like, are you saved? You say, yeah. Well, not completely. Your bodies have yet to be saved. We're waiting for the redemption of the body. The earth is going to be redeemed. This planet, as beautiful as it is, going to be ramped up back to version 2.0. It's going to be really amazing uh, when it comes about. So all of that is part of the gospel. Now, in speaking with a person about the gospel, where do you begin? It's a trick question. It depends where they are. Depends what they understand. In America, in cultures that view the, value the Bible, we tend to focus on point number four. Because most religions, Judaism, Islam, many forms of Christianity, focus on doing things to please God, gaining favor through sacraments, giving to the poor, etc. But in cultures that do not value the word of God, we've got to go back to number one. Hindus believe in millions of gods. Many forms of Buddhism are atheistic moral systems. That's it. In America and Europe, we have an increasing level of skepticism about there being any God or any supernatural world. And thus, 
in the cultural West, designated as the blue on the maps. And I think they're putting a little too much blue in South America. But generally, that is the cultural West. The big issue is, is there a creator God? Now, having said that, wherever else the West goes, this doubt will continue to flow with it. This doubt is the most dangerous thing in the world today, guys. The reason people fly airplanes into American buildings is because of this. Western doubt is coming. Atheism, agnosticism, American rock, American Hollywood culture. It will destroy Islam. It will destroy Hinduism. It will destroy Christianity. Except that Jesus is not going to let that happen. This is coming, and the world is afraid. I taught apologetics in Amman, Jordan, north of Amman, Jordan, back in September. They said, we have never met many people at all who did not believe in God. So it was kind of a strange idea to them. But we have heard there are people in the universities that believe this, and some business people from Europe, they believe this. So it's still strange. This week... On Monday, my wife and I fly to Egypt. I'm teaching apologetics there. The Egyptians are like, tell us about atheism. Egypt is starting to move secular. They're embracing this secular Islam. And there's more and more atheism spreading throughout that country. So Jordan and Egypt, not far from each other, but they are in different places because Egypt is more pro-Western. And therefore, here it comes, the skepticism. So, now... I want to go back a little bit without boring you to totally to tears. The modern era lasted for a long time. I know you think modern is like 1980s and forward, but it actually begins in the 1300s, okay? It actually begins with the Renaissance, the rebirth of knowledge and science. Actually, it was when we went to the Middle East and we attacked you guys down in, in uh, the Middle East, and we found out that the Arab-speaking peoples were far ahead of us in math, science, art, and philosophy, and we're like, ooh, Europeans, white people, we've been running around in animal skins for a thousand years. We better get our act together. And so we brought back all this knowledge and started to get some ideas. Now, in the modern era, the modern era was known for dogmatism. This has nothing to do with dogs, okay? <laughs> nothing at all. Dogmatism means I believe very surely and strongly in my ideas. I have no doubts. And the main idea that was powerful in the West, in Europe, was you can be sure about Christianity. The Roman Catholic Church had a hold on everything. But what happened is as science continued to grow, scientists were like, dude, you know what? The earth is not the center of the solar system. The sun is. And the church said, burn the guy at the stake. And so they started to realize, we got a problem with this Catholic Church. It's a problem. And so let's get science separated from the church. And then there came an era where the Protestant Reformation took place in the 1500s where like, you know, we can't even believe the Bible without getting burned at the stake. We need to separate from the Catholic Church. So the Catholics were losing the scientists and the Protestants at the same time. And so there arose eventually an attitude, let's not get free from the Catholic Church, let's get free from any belief in God. You can be sure about science. As Richard Dawkins says, evolution is fact. No reasonable scientist in his mind ever would say that a theory is fact. Anyone who's a scientist knows that there is no such thing as a fact in science. There are theories that are well-established, but you don't call things facts unless they're like mathematical, factual things. But science took on this Role, increasing role. And as the 1800s came along, we came up with ideas like secular democracy. Let's keep religion out of government. And then there was Darwinism, theory of origins of the earth that go back, we didn't know how far back then, but now they're saying 13.8 billion years. And God is not part of that. And then there was secular humanism, where we can develop ourselves, we can improve ourselves to become, we, we need to, be the masters of our own fate and take over our own existence. This is why we're looking for other planets because Earth is eventually going to become messed up. We've got to keep moving on to other planets. And eventually, um, communism, which was secular as well. The four great experiments of secular ideas. 
these four titans, communism, humanism, secular democracy, and, and, and Darwinism, set against Christianity. And those of us who are older, we remember when we grew up, man, we got beat the stuffings out of us because we didn't have answers to these things. Praise God for groups like Institute for Creation Research or Answers in Genesis or many, many different sites now that are giving us really, really good science that has a theistic base to it. So dogmatism, you can be sure about Christianity. No, 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 you can be sure about science. Okay, and then there came an era growing in the 1930s through the 1970s, and then eventually in 1989, some say it arrived with the fall of communism. All of a sudden, you know what? We can't be sure about science either. So we can't be sure about religion, and we can't be sure about science. In fact, you can be sure of nothing. And so the accountability partner for dogmatism is skepticism. I, really, I don't know. How, I mean, how do I know that? How can I really believe that? How can I really trust that? And so as part of it, they doubted all the postmoderns. Now, notice I'm not putting postmodern era. You cannot have a postmodern era. You cannot run a country with postmodern ideas because skepticism only tears down. It doesn't build up. It's very, very important. It only tears down, only questions. It's like, well, I don't know. I can't be sure. I don't know. I can't be sure. Yeah, democracy's no good. How about totalitarian dictatorship? No, that's no good either. Really, what would you build? What, what society would you like, Junior? No, I don't really know. No, you don't know, because if you put up an idea, I would tear yours to shreds, wouldn't I? But see, this skepticism is out there, and it's like, Trust no one. Trust no authorities. Watch your movies, guys. Avatar. Okay, really popular a few years ago. What is it? Don't trust the government. Don't trust the military. And don't trust business. That's the main theme of Avatar. The simple people living spirit. It's kind of spirit, you know, oneness with the one spirit kind of thing. Those are the noble people. They are disorganized. They have some structure, political structure, but it's generally pretty egalitarian society. If it's a Catholic church telling you, distrust. If it's the government telling you, distrust it. We live now in an outrage culture where everything is being driven by the hashtag, where everyone is, you're coming up with your own meaning, your own truth with your group, whether you are a minority, whether you are an abused woman, whatever else, all of the groups are finding their identity in a sub-sub-subculture because you cannot trust the powers. There's skepticism of anyone who holds power. Anyone who explains creation from beginning to end, uh, anyone who explains reality from beginning to end, you really can't trust. And so Christianity comes along. In the beginning, <laughs> God created the heavens and the earth. How's it end? God's going to redo the heavens and the earth. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And there's this story from beginning to end. We explain it all. <sighs> Don't trust the Bible. Well, we got a better idea. There is no God. So everything began with the kind of a big bang. And everything kind of spread out and kind of, you know, one, done, ba -dum, ba -dum, ba -dum, ba -dum. Uh, so where are we going? Well, it's not a really good story. The universe is eventually going to go dark and cold, and we will all die. It doesn't matter how many sinking planets you find to move on to. Every star's going out. This thing is going down, baby. There is no hope. There's no meaning. There's no value. There's no purpose. Kill yourself now. That's called nihilism. There's no value. There's no, oh, what a lovely idea. Welcome to public school. They don't tell you the implications of what they're trying to teach you. And so postmodernism says, trash Christianity. But postmodern also, also says, trash atheism. The belief that there was nothing. And nothing happened to nothing. And then nothing magically exploded for no reason, creating everything. And then a bunch of everything magically rearranged itself for no reason whatsoever into self-replicating bits, which then turned into dinosaurs. Makes perfect sense. You say, I like that. I'm going to take a picture of that. They trash Christianity just the same. Bunch of ideas dreamed up by Bedouins riding around in the desert on their camels. Welcome to Christianity. And you're like, ooh. 
See, skepticism rips everything to shreds. And you say, well, tell me what you believe. And they'll say, I don't know. Wow. We got our job cut out for us, don't we? So we come up with products. And here they are, guys, the four horsemen of atheism. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett. The third guy, the third guy's name is Hitch. Christopher Hitchens. He's no longer an atheist because he died three years ago. He's not an atheist now. His brother Peter is a pastor. They've had some really good debates together. They didn't talk to each other for about 20 years. But the other three, promoting atheism, it's known as new atheism. It's actually, a, new atheism is anti-theism. It's attack Christianity. They don't really attack Islam so much. I guess they get killed if they do that. But they, they don't attack Buddhism or Hinduism, but Christianity, bah, it's always open season. That's how you know Christianity's true. Atheism hates us more than anybody else. Atheism, I don't believe in a God. Now, hard atheism is ridiculous. It's, be careful, don't ever say that, okay? Um, it's just logically unsound. For instance, somebody says, I don't believe in God. Why not? I just don't believe it. He doesn't exist. Well, let me ask you a question. What if God is behind Saturn? Huh? What if God is behind Saturn? What do you mean, what if God's behind Saturn? I asked you a question. What if God is a physical material being and he lives behind Saturn? Have you been there? Well, no. Oh, come on, we got satellites, we'll send satellites up. But what if he ducks behind Jupiter when you send the satellites up? Well, we'll send satellites all over the galaxy and we'll just, you know, prove, all right, fine, but what if he moves out to Alpha Centauri? And they look at you like, what is wrong with you? I'm just asking you questions. Because in order to prove there is no God, you would have to be physically present everywhere in the universe at the same time, which would make you God, which is really the issue, isn't it? Man, I'm really wandering from my notes because I'm, uh, my iPad just totally shut down. I guess he's not coming back. I'm back. The more honest one is agnosticism. I don't care even if there is a God. Belief or disbelief is kind of, you know, it's, it's, It's unknowable. There's not enough evidence. These guys are a little bit harder because then you got to talk about, well, can we talk about maybe some clues that God exists? I'm going to give those to you in a second. Apathyism is the worst. You can see the combination of two words, apathy and theism. I don't really care. I got a Starbucks around the corner. I got an iPhone 10. Okay, I got an iPhone 8. That's better than a 10. Um, I've got my friends, I've got a really good job. We went hiking up in the Cascades last week. Man, it was like amazing. I'm interested in life now. What are you talking about this? You know, and when you go to Scandinavia, they're like, what is wrong with you Christians? Talking about death all the time. And like, you know, oh, eternity's coming, life after death. You know, why don't you just enjoy life? What is wrong with you people? Are you mentally deranged? We had somebody say to us. No, but we believe that life compared to life after death is like very, very small, but critically important to set you up for that life. Man, you guys are weird. Yeah. So apathyism. I don't care. I don't even want to talk about it. Now, where atheism takes root, there are five kinds, five. Now, five kinds of atheists, I'm giving this to you. Please, never use this in a discussion with your friends. They will punch your face, okay? Thank you. Every atheist wants you to believe that they are this kind. Got it? I'm an intellectual atheist. In other words, there's not enough evidence to believe in there's a God. There's too much evidence against this. This is known as kind of a a soft atheism. It's a good, honest, robust atheism. It's not easy to dialogue with them. Some people actually study. They study out science and they study out philosophy and they kind of believe that this is the best belief system and it's 
You can dialogue with them. You can learn how to dialogue to bring up issues, to bring up questions. What about this? What about that? But there's another big category and perhaps maybe a majority category known as emotional atheists. These people are angry with a God who allowed their suffering, so they killed him. The pictures of Megan Lichtenwalner, I bring her up. She's um, now a pastor's wife, as you can see, in Green Bay. Megan was an atheist going through high school. Her parents separated. Family flew into a thousand fragments. She was angry, and she said, you know what? God sucks because he made my life this way. That's it. God's dead. So as an atheist, she got invited by Christians in her public school to come to uh, her church youth group, just like this one, you know? And so she started coming and just sat there and just kind of snickered, you know, in the back row, like making weird plosive noises, you know? Uh, But she came, she kept coming for two years, three years. Eventually, some of her closest friends were Christians and she was like, this is really bad. All my good friends are Christians and I'm an atheist and they don't know. And uh, she was really put in a time of turmoil and eventually what happened was some message, some challenge by the youth leader and her heart just crumbled and she professed faith in in God. A couple of years later, she came to the Christian college that I was teaching at. She was amazing, absolutely amazing. And, um, but her reasons, now uh, the movie, God is not dead, Remember the professor in there? He was angry because his mother had gotten sick and died. And so therefore, same thing, emotional atheism. These are the people like Steve Wiggum that I started at the beginning. God does not exist, number one. And number two, I hate him. Third is a willful atheist. They want to live their life with no boundaries and no one to answer to. Dude, I'm in my 20s. I like I want to party hardy and I don't want God like thinking about, you know, cosmic party pooper, you know, I'm going to be answering for all of my fun times, so I'm just going to check God out of my existence, and I'm going to live like there's no God. A fool said in his heart, there is no God. This is the classic example of somebody who wants to have fun. Now, you say, well, that sounds like a, a, you know, a millennial. It's not actually just millennials. In fact, if you read the, some of the books, I think Aldous Huxley, who was one of the leading atheists of the 20th century, he wrote a book before he died, called Confessions of an Atheist. And he said, in the end of the game, we did not want a God that would tell us what to do sexually with our moral lives. So we just came up with a good philosophy that killed God so we could live the way we wanted to live. It's interesting, a great confession and a nice nice quote to have from somebody who's really famous. A relational atheist, this goes two ways. Either they want to imitate friends or idols or they want to get back at their parents. So I want to imitate friends or idols So, like Mr. Cool Jock at the school is an atheist. Or did you hear that Daniel Radcliffe, the guy who plays Harry Potter, he's an atheist. I'm an atheist too. Isn't that cool? So you kind of adopt that. This is a kind of a mindless thing. And what they do is they read a couple of short blogs or maybe not even that, just some memes on the internet. And that is the sum and substance of their intellectual atheism, okay? The other one is this. And it could happen right here at Edgewood where you got a kid and he gets angry at his parents in order to get back. You know, you're grounded for a month for what you did. Fine, fine, whatever. And I don't even believe in God. It's like, and, and you know, if you were a parent, if your kids said that to you, your knees would kind of buckle. Pastor Jeff, we need to talk, okay? You'd be very destroyed and distraught because your kid used the weapon of mass destruction. I don't believe in God. There's one more, and one of the saddest, a cultural atheist, where they live. They never heard about God. Karen and I met an exchange student from Sweden, studying at North Georgia, in Dalton, Georgia. He was 21 years old. He said, yes, I was very happy to get this exchange position with uh, the university uh, here in Georgia, and because I, I knew Americans were like very religious and spent a lot of time in church. And I wanted to learn about this because I'm 21 years old and in all my years growing up in Sweden, I never met a person who believed in God. I know maybe you thought it was the jungles of Papua New Guinea or something, but it's Sweden. 
Norway, Denmark, the cultural atheist. So we had a really good talk with him. And he said, thank you. You have given me much to think about. I've never heard these ideas before. I was like, yes, I love this. So here's the balance. God has revealed enough to hold mankind accountable. God is hidden enough to keep mankind searching. My buddy, my good buddy, Blaise Pascal, he was a Frenchman. Some of the finest French ever written was by Blaise Pascal. He was a believer. His sister was a believer, never did get married, died in his early 30s. Brilliant mathematician and philosopher. And he said this, God determined that it was not right that he should appear in an obviously divine manner, completely capable of convincing all men. But it was also not right that he should come in so hidden a manner that he could not be known by those who were sincerely seeking him. He is willed to make himself quite recognizable by those willing to appear openly to those who seek him with all their heart and to be hidden from those who flee from him with all their heart. He so regulates the knowledge of himself that he has given signs of himself visible to those who seek him, but not to those who do not seek him. Another person in the 20th century, not so fine and not so French, said, an atheist cannot find God for the same reason that a thief cannot find a policeman. Okay? So it has to do with the heart. It has to do with searching. You ever wonder, huh, why God didn't proclaim the gospel with 90-foot angels? That would be really cool. Huh? Flying over Seattle, Jesus saves, repent or perish. Oh, man, you know, Starbucks would just be emptied out in a second. Did you see that 90-foot angel? I believe. You think they would believe, but actually in many cases they wouldn't. Jesus said, the one comes back from the dead. They won't believe if they're not listening to the scripture. We want that. We want, you know, clouds that paint out Jesus saves over top of Seattle. It'd be so cool. It'd be too plain. They wouldn't have to actually seek God with their heart. It would just be plain as day, and that's not what God has chosen to do. So God has given clues, but there is this balance. Our job is to help people to find these clues. Basic truth about God can be known from the creation, our text says. What are these ideas? Well, science and the scripture now agree, the bulk of science for sure, that the universe started at a time in the finite past. That is just so delightful to use that scientific fact to throw in someone's face. What was before then? Nothing. Really. Then what happened? A quantum fluctuation. That's what Stephen Hawking wants to say. A quantum fluctuation. Steve, you got to have something. There's got to be a law to have a quantum fluctuation. Where did it start? Nothing. There was nothing and nothing acted on nothing and created like everything. Good. Really good theory. Maybe you should try that a second time. Keep working on that. We agree. The universe began at a finite point in time in the past. Oh, I could go into this. This is like my favorite area, but I can't. Can I keep moving? No. Well, never mind. Okay. Second clue, the universe is filled with intelligent design and fine-tuning. Intelligent design is normally used for the itty-bitty things, the microbiology. They're saying, look, for the most basic life form, you had to have DNA. You had to have programming of a laptop computer in the first... I don't care if lightning struck the primordial goo. You had to have intelligence all through the goo in order for it to ever replicate. Come on. But go up into the big cosmos from the itty-bitty way up into the big living space. And what do you got? Well, you got 38 fundamental constants that run the universe. They are all fine-tuned to within fractions of fractions of fractions of fractions. You turn one of them, one little notch, and the universe would cease to exist. 38 of them. So much so that astrophysicists are coming to faith in God and noting that the God of the Bible is the best explanation for this. So they're coming to faith in Christ. You say, why aren't they all coming out of the faith closet? Well, if you do this, you lose your position at the university and you lose all your research funding. And so they are not going to say anything until they get my age. They've got enough money. They've got enough clout. And finally, they publish a book. And they talk about the evidence of God and the creation and the cosmos. And these guys are 
top-notch astrophysicists. And there are books all over the place. And you can read stuff for fine-tuning and intelligent design by top-notch scientists. Look, guys, there's a, there's a whole online petition, Darwin's Doubts. Thousands and thousands of PhDs are saying, get rid of Darwinism. It's interfering with science. We cannot go where the evidence leads us. When we say there's intelligence, you say, no, you're not allowed to say that. It's like, this is science. Yeah, but you're not allowed to talk about that kind of science. Great. So they're trying to get rid of it, actually. Humanity has a common internal moral compass. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, you make a gesture. Hopefully it's like Italian gesture and not other gestures. Um, you're appealing, well, hey, you know. Well, there's no law against that. It's just like we have this all notions of propriety. I notice you're all wearing clothing. It's a good thing, praise God. Um, but because you have this idea, nakedness is wrong. Life, liberty, property, the basic rights of man, everything embodied in the UN Declaration of Human Rights is based on this internal written law. Law comes from lawgiver. It's a design idea. Where did we get the design and the conscience from? Would this have evolved over time? Really? I should imperil my life by helping an old lady across the street in traffic? No way. She's old. Let her die. That's what evolution would teach me. But our modern, our moral compass could not have evolved. Impossible. Clue number four, humanity has a common idea of God, ultimate justice, life after death. Atheism is only you know, about 12% of the world. It's growing, 12%. But guys, that means that there's like 87, 88% of the world that is theistic, that believes in a God. The idea of ultimate justice, that some mafioso boy living life high on the hog and he's about 500 pounds and he orders hits on people, killing him and he deals in drugs and he deals in diamonds and gold and eventually he dies as a fat old man and you're like, that just isn't right. That guy caused the deaths of so many people. It is not right that he should die without punishment. I agree. That means there's got to be a punishment on the other side. There's something in humanity that just screams that. Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they can't figure out what God's doing from end to beginning. And man, you are right about that. So, order and regularity in the universe that humans can understand. It is amazing all of this science, and it's amazing that we have minds that comprehend the math and the science behind the cosmos. Our desire for God, now I don't mean to reduce Jesus to a superhero, but I love the idea of superheroes. A superhero, I start, go back to Hercules, okay? A God-man. We want someone to come to earth other than all of our current leaders. Amen? And we want him to be holy. We want there to be no scandals. We want him to speak truth, not his own truth, but real truth. We want him to defend those who are oppressed. We want him to take care of crime. We want him to have this amazing sense of truth and justice and maybe not the American way, but I mean, a lot of that stuff. We want a God-man. Someone from maybe outer space like planet Krypton. You mean like Jesus? No, not that one. Plato talked about the philosopher king. We want a powerful, wealthy, but righteous and holy and compassionate leader. We're longing for the Jesus to rule and reign from Jerusalem, but we haven't gotten him yet. But the world looks at Jesus and they're like, no, we don't want that. We'll make up. The Hulk and Spider-Man and Batman and Thor. And we'll come up with everything other than Jesus. Because we don't want your Jesus. And we'll put a cape on him. Unless he flies near airplane jet engines, you know. Clue number seven. The beauty of nature. Science cannot explain morals. And it cannot explain beauty. Science cannot tell us what is good. It can only tell us what we can do, but not whether we should do it. Well, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. I love when this arrogant scientism's, it's called scientism. It's a faith in science. 
We had a president, recent president say, science is our savior. So that kind of belief, you know, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Really? See that girl over there? She beautiful? Yeah. How do you know that? What creates beauty? Why is your car beautiful? Can you measure it out and tell me why it's beautiful? No, you can't. Measure that sunset. Well, we could, well, you know, we can. No, they can't. They can't understand why when the autumn comes and the sap stops flowing, do leaves turn into these brilliant colors? They could all just turn gray and drop straight down. Welcome to autumn. You know? That'd be terrible. No, we got light, fluffy colors coming down. The aspen, you know, the quaking golden showers. It's amazing. And then the snow. Snow, light, fluffy stuff that causes all of fancy pants humanity to come to a grinding halt. And we stay inside and we watch a fire. Why should fire be so beautiful? Beauty, yeah, science can't explain that. Where, where's all this beauty in nature coming from? The other thing is we crave relational perfection, which cannot be found in humans. Humans always let us down. Philosopher Immanuel Kant from the 1800s said, this is one of the main reasons, although I doubt the existence of God, I believe that there must be a God because we want to love and be loved and yet every human being around us disappoints. So there must be someone who is the lover of our soul that we should love in, in return as best we can. For that reason, he believed there must be a God. So we give these clues to those who are skeptical and those who doubt. But how do people suppress the truth? Verses 18 to 23 says this order, the declension of man. They knew God. They began by knowing God, but they did not honor him. And they were not thankful to him, showing a heart issue, not a mind issue. It's a heart issue. They became meaningless in their philosophy. This is Nietzsche who came up with nihilism. He is idolized still in philosophical circle. The man went insane for the last 10 years of his life. Really? And most of our days, ideas are gained by his sister, who was trying to make him into something great. And yet, oh, we don't want to talk about that. You know, he's still our hero. No way. He came up with the idea that there is no meaning, value, and purpose. And it's true. You kill God. If you, he's the one who said God is dead. And so if God is dead, cows are big, fishes are dogs, a blade of grass. We're all the same. There's no, nothing special or unique about us, which leads to this despair and yes, guys, stats are in. Atheists commit suicide far more regularly than the regular populace and divorce more and marry less and have fewer children. Is that really what we want? The atheism that attacks our society, that attacks the Christianity upon which their society and their whole legal system is built. You cannot create a good society that will last based on atheism and humanism. Their hearts were darkened so that they can, could not even see, claiming themselves to be fancy pants. Well, he's got a doctor. Oh, we love to talk about what scientists believe. Have you heard science? Scientists recently concluded that, and we're all like, we're all listening. We have this faith. The scientists are the priests of today, and we have this mindless belief following them, claiming themselves to be wise. They became fools. They created demigods. They ended up in pantheism, afraid of nature. Practical application. Gallup did a poll in, 19, in 2009, religion is important in my daily life. Only 10 to 19%. We're not talking about God here even, we're talking about religion. In Sweden and Denmark, 10 to 19%. Matthew Bates is our BMW's only missionary in Denmark. I talked to him three weeks ago as I was preparing this message. I said, Matthew, give me the recent update now on Denmark. Our belief is, in the country of Denmark, there are now three churches that preach the gospel and the Bible. Three. The largest is in Schöbenhaven in Copenhagen. It's about 110 people. The others are about 50 to 60 people each. There are 10 missionaries working in the country. 
Most of them just trying to get started. Welcome to Denmark. If you keep going, Norway, Czech Republic, the UK and Finland, 20 to 29% of the people said religion was important. And understand, please, that the number one name for a boy in now in the UK is Muhammad. So if 20 to 29% believe that religion is important, how many of those are Islamic and not Christian? There are many places in Europe where you can do interviews on the street corner for many days and not speak to a person who is sure that God exists. Statistically, if you stand on the street corner in Paris and say, do you, understand, do you know the God of the Bible? Do you know Jesus? It is the chance of one in 16,000 before you will meet a person who can accurately explain to you who Jesus Christ is. Iceland, last year, just opened the first state-funded pagan temple in the world, dedicated to the Norwegian gods and the other spirits that are around, government-funded. You, you got to be careful where you read. You go to Operation World, <laughs> and you'll see, oh, 4.4 million of Norway's 5 million people are Christians. Something doesn't sound right there, though. You know, what's the, what's the problem? 73% are Lutheran, then you realize, oh, and you can go on YouTube, watch and, and, and go um, uh, atheism in Sweden or atheism in Norway, and they have interviews. This guy, guy's just finished two years, two years of on-the-street interviews with people in Sweden, Denmark, and Norway about their beliefs in God or religion. They came back so discouraged. They tried to transition conversations to the gospel, but wow. Turns out, Somebody says, yes, we're having our baby dedicated this week. Really? So you're Lutheran? Yes. So what do you believe? What was your belief system? Oh, well, we're atheists. You're atheists? Yes. Why are you having your baby baptized? This is what we do as Swedes. All our children are baptized. When they're baptized, they're put on the rolls in the Lutheran church. I talked to a man in, uh, in Luxembourg, and uh, he said he was Roman Catholic. I said, what, what parish do you belong to? Oh, no, I, I don't attend church or mass. I said, why not? He said, because I'm an atheist. I said, now help me, I'm an American, I don't get out much. Uh, what, you're an atheist and a Catholic? Yes. How is that? Because I'm from Trier in Germany, that is a Catholic town. Wait for the day, people, it's coming. I'm a Baptist because I'm from Georgia. Well, I'm an atheist, but I'm a Baptist. Be careful, it's coming. So when you look further into the polls and just go on Wikipedia, you find out that in Norway, 40% of them are atheists. 25% agnostic, that's 65%. 20% say religion is important. Only 3% attend church at all. In fact, people, I know that you all want to go to lands with poor little brown people for missions. But I'm saying you need to reconsider the most needy nations in the world all have the Christian cross in their flag. It's unbelievable. Missiologists say they had their chance, really. So we're going to let the whole country die and go to hell because they had their chance. Because they had Christianity 800 years ago and it somehow slipped away. Really? Or should we take seriously the need that is there and the need that is here? in Puget Sound. So my concluding points, if you know and walk with God, be careful of dogmatism. Don't arrogantly suppose that you have God figured out. A lot of you are familiar because of certain churches in the area about the emergent church movement. Emergent church was your dogmatism is a little too dogmatic. You've got your little God in a box. Yeah, sure, ask me any question. I can tell you about God. And they're like, you know, there's a lot more mystery to this. Now, the problem was they swung the pendulum way too far out the other way, and they put mystery in everything, even things that are dead certain in Scripture. But understand that there has to be this balance. Be careful of oversimplifying your God. If you can understand your God and answer every question about your God, you've got the wrong God because the God of the Scriptures cannot fit inside of your brain. You need a bigger God. You need a real God. 
You need a God who is full of mystery. We have all that we need in the scripture, but our God is so much bigger than that. Do you realize that if you were to multiply the number of years that Puget Sound has existed times the blades of grass times 3.14159, the quotient of pi, it equals the amount of hairs on the head of every people, every person who has ever lived in Puget Sound. I just made that up. <laughs> but you wait. God has the DVD. We just sang about it tonight. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And I'm looking around, I'm like, how can it be filled with his glory? And you know what? I don't think God does things willy-nilly. I think there are weird things like this. Math, our God is like math. He's amazing. And that everything ties together. We don't need to know that. But you just remember that your God is far bigger than your ability to understand him. But we have this revelation in the scripture. And it is wonderful. And we have Jesus. And this is all we need. Accept the fact that much about our God is hidden and beyond our comprehension. Appreciate how frustrating that is for many people. But also appreciate that the main problem is not in the mind. It is in the heart. And is in the matter of them being willing to seek after God. Let me challenge you if you are a skeptic about God, Jesus, and life after death. Some of you are engineers. Some of you are lawyers. By your training or the way you grew up, your personality, you are naturally a skeptic. It's okay, Thomas was too. But understand that your heart must sincerely seek God and be guarded against emotional, willful, and relational pressures to embrace atheism, apathyism, and walk away. Your mind must also practice intellectual integrity and study both sides. This hits painfully close to home. I have a son-in-law who is a skeptic. And he read... Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. I said, have you read Alistair McGrath's The Dawkins Delusion? Well, no. Well, no? What do you mean, well, no? I didn't say it loud like that. He's my son-in-law. I have to behave. Let me just challenge you to intellectual responsibility. If you read one side, you also need to read the other side. You need to read competing views because to read one side only indicates to me that your heart does not want to know the other side and your heart will not give your mind permission to go there and that is intellectually irresponsible he doesn't want to be intellectually irresponsible so I, I uh, he said before we left I said give me a book list so I gave him a book list Dedicate yourself to being a transformed servant of others who makes God famous and talks about God's clues with those who may be seeking to know him. Your number one apologetic is never an argument. Guys, you will never, ever in your whole life argue an atheist into the kingdom of heaven. You're never going to get an atheist who's going to be like, uh, uh, uh. I have no response to that. I guess I'll believe in Jesus. Woo! Never going to happen. It's a matter of your life being the number one apologetic. You've got to show them what a, tr a life transformed, given meaning, value, and purpose by Jesus Christ is. And then you can talk and suggest some clues. And then also, because it's a missions conference, consider taking the gospel to postmodern, post-Christian lands that are hungering for objective meaning to life. So many out there, so many needs. But you have a great opportunity to practice right here at Edgewood. Get equipped. Get prepared. It's coming at us faster than we think. We're going to need to be skilled warriors for the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. God, our Father, thank you for the mysteries that are locked throughout the cosmos. And your word tells us that your heavens declare your glory. The firmament shows your handiwork. That a knowledge of you is written in our own consciences. Yet, Father, the hearts of people around us have grown hard. And worse yet, 
Christianity has reached its high watermark and is on the decline here, so now we're moving post-Christian in a hurry. I pray that we would be transformed people more than we ever have before, not just for our sake, but for the gospel's sake. That when we move into the marketplace every day, people would just know that there's something different and that you would help us to speak in a way that lines up with the way that we live. We transform people with a transforming message. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. For without these, men cannot be saved. Help us not just to live a moral life, an exemplary life in front of people, but to speak this life-giving truth of the gospel so that more worshipers can be brought to your throne. For the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.